Okay, well, with me is Mr. Ben Azadi. He is author, coach, and founder of Keto Camp. Mr. Ben Azadi, welcome to the Rest and Recovery Podcast. Scott, I'm grateful to be with you today. I'm rested, I'm recovered, I feel good. <laughs> That's great. We we're just joking offline. When I had the opportunity to meet you in person, was in Miami uh, at the Biohacking Congress, and uh, you had a, quite a busy week uh, that that week uh, before you headed into Miami. So. Um, grateful for your time and, and insights and looking forward to uh to learning more about keto and, and the impacts of restroom recovery absolutely it was great seeing you in miami at the biohacking congress i did not recover well or sleep well or do all the things <laughs> we're going to talk about today and i felt it but you know what i did whatever it took to to educate that weekend i did it and now i'm rested and recovered that's good well i mean i think that's a good life lesson though for all of us that i know for me throughout much of life that perfectionist mindset sets out that even the folks that uh, I'll say do this, you know, health and wellness as a profession or, or even cognizant and aware within their own life, whether it's their profession or not, um, you have moments and you have to navigate through those. It's not necessarily the end, the end of the story. It's just more, how do you understand the work through that process? Yeah, exactly. And, and all of it's a learning lesson, right? And, and I learned a lot from it. And it's good to kind of push your body as well to see how far you could take it in, yeah. in a smart way. So I was able to do what I needed to do that weekend and function, I think, at a good level. And then I really prioritized rest and recovery that entire week after that, those two events. Great. So um, so I mentioned Keto Camp. Um, you know, maybe give uh, for those listening a bit of a backstory, like who is the origination story, as I'll say, Genesis 1-1 of uh, Ben Azadi and how you started up keto camp i i got started in the health space in 2008 scott when i went through this <clears throat> transformation i lost 80 pounds i used to be obese physically obese mentally obese wow um, suicidal ready to give up on life this is back in 2008 when i was 24 years old and uh thankfully i got out of that hard place that rock bottom place and it started with reading some books books really changed my life and helped me take responsibility back then and I went through this transformation and lost 80 pounds, went from 34% body fat to 6% body fat. And that's what got me started into the health space. At that time, I became a personal trainer. And then I ended up opening up a CrossFit gym and selling the CrossFit gym. But I was still kind of navigating what true cellular health looked like and felt like. Right. And it wasn't until 2013, 2014 that I discovered these, what I call ancient healing strategies, one of them being the ketogenic diet, which is really more of a, a metabolic process. And I fell in love with it. And I started to apply keto and fasting. And I started to experience what it felt like being in ketosis. And ever since then, I've been teaching it and following different formulations and, and experiments with keto and fasting. And then out of that spawned my company, Keto Camp, and we are on a mission at Keto Camp to educate and to inspire a billion people to get the message out there. So that's kind of how it got started in a nutshell. That's a, I, I didn't realize uh, where you came from originally, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in that evolution and really becoming a passion for you, it sounds like. You're losing your voice there, Scott? Yeah, excuse me. I'm losing my voice here. Not not optimal for a podcast, right? <laughs> no, it's not. I got uh, some water. <laughs> I got some water here. Um, so where I was going with that was um, that evolution and really kind of going getting bought into the concept of keto. What was it that um, 
kind of drew you to it? Why, why did you kind of navigate down that path? I was transitioning from a vegan diet. I was a vegan, uh, plant-based hundred percent for a year and a half. And in the beginning, the vegan diet was, was great for me. I felt a lot better. And then a few months into it, uh, it wasn't working for me, but I was really dogmatic about it. So I just stuck with it. And a year and a half later, I thought I got to change things up. I don't feel good. Um, recovering very slowly from my workouts. My energy levels were depleted. Hormones were wonky. So I started to get into the work, study, started studying individuals like Paul Cech, okay. uh, yeah. Dave Asprey, Mercola, and a few others. And they, they were talking about keto. Jimmy Moore, who was at the Biohacking Congress, they were talking about keto, ketogenic diet, ketogenesis. And I was thinking, what is that? So I started to look into it and started to study our ancestors a little bit. And what I discovered was that every single one of our ancestors actually did keto. Uh, and there's nothing new about it. It's just nuanced. It's, it's a metabolic process that is completely normal. And the true fad diet is the standard American diet. And what we really have in America is a keto deficiency. So it made a lot of sense to me that we are designed to burn fat. Babies are born into ketosis that are <laughs> breastfed, right? So I started to, uh, it made a lot of sense to me. And then I thought, okay, it makes sense, but let me apply it. And then I applied it and I started to feel so much better, perform better. And that's where it just took off for me. I really fell in love with it. Yeah. So can you explain, what do you mean by uh, babies are born into ketosis? Cause that's a pretty funny quote, but uh, what is, what does that mean metabolically for, for babies? So breast milk has saturated fat, cholesterol, does have some sugar, but it has a lot of saturated fat and cholesterol, and it helps the development of the baby's brain because the brain loves fat, the brain loves ketones. So although the baby's getting some sugar in the breast milk, it's so efficient at burning that sugar, it goes in and out of ketosis. So naturally, every human being that's born into this world that's breastfed is actually in ketosis. I believe burning fat and being in ketosis is our primal birthright. The, the challenge, the problem is that this baby that's being breastfed, uh, it's now weaned off and then it's fed this high sugar instant formula. And then it's right. given snacks and meals and snacks and desserts. And it, now it's taught to be a sugar burner and it's uh, so far removed from its natural fat burning state. So what we want to do is get back to that fat burning state of ketosis. Wow. I had not even thought about that from a baby perspective. And then as you're talking about it, I my kids are a little bit older now, but the snacks that we'd always give them are all like rice-based or grain-based um, just because they're kind of easy. Uh, yeah. You know, um, so that I had not thought about that before. So you kind of touched so on- common too. Yeah, it's so common, yeah. Um, you kind of touched on, you know, fad diets and like, like you were kind of alluding to, I think, you know, keto has been presented as a fad diet, like a number of other ones out there. Um, in my opinion is probably it's, it's individualized, right. Um, on what's optimal for everyone, but how you mentioned this, what's called the sad diet, which is kind of crazy that it's called that the, the standard American diet. Could you maybe unpack that a little further? Yeah. Yeah. So the standard American diet appropriately, appropriately named the sad diet also called the stupid American diet. <laughs> Uh, it has only been around for what, 40 to 50 years. We developed different food pyramids, my plate, et cetera. And that's fairly new in the grand scheme of things because ketosis has been around since humans have existed. The fat uh, diet, standard American diet has been around for 50 years. So if you put that in comparison, when people start telling you or saying, oh, that keto thing, it's a fad diet, 
they've got it backwards. The standard American diet is the new diet. It's the fad diet. Ketosis is not even a diet. Technically, it's a metabolic process. Okay. And every single one of our ancestors were in that metabolic process. Here's how I know why. Because they didn't have food readily available to them all the time. So they had to fast. And when you fast, you drop, you burn through your glycogen stores, which are your sugar reserves. And then all of a sudden, glucose is going to drop in the brain. And if you don't have the ability to produce ketones, you would turn into a crazy person and probably die. The brain will panic. So what right. happens? The body starts to mobilize fat, send that fat to your liver, and then you have ketogenesis. Ketones are produced to fuel the brain. Uh, and that happened with every single one of our ancestors. So that, that's a fact. So when somebody starts spewing nonsense about keto being new, it's not new. It's just nuanced. Uh, that's an important distinction. You, you mentioned something, and I think I, I heard you right, about you hear about sugar and could make you kind of like crazy or like it, it just what you said kind of made me think around anxiety and mental emotional challenges we have today, mm -hmm. uh, if there's any connection there. Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about, there's always a gut brain connection, first of all. So whatever's happening in the gut, happening in the brain, if you have a gut dysbiosis, if you have a leaky gut, it could lead to anxiety, it could lead to depression, it could lead to stress. I just did a, I just spoke at a conference last week in, in Utah, all about this subject. The vagus nerve connects the gut to the brain. So whatever happens in the gut goes on in the brain, whatever happens in the brain goes on in the gut. So stress Mental stress could lead to uh, gut dysbiosis. It could lead to gut issues. It could lead to constipation. So it's back and forth. Now, when somebody's eating a high sugar diet, it's typically high processed at the same time, which will wreck the gut, which could lead to those mental issues. Right. Also, when we think about just from a physio physi physiological standpoint, when you spike glucose, when you eat carbs, you spike glucose, that glucose drops, all of a sudden glucose in the brain drops, and then the brain starts to panic, go find more glucose, it starts to get really uh, stressed out, if you will, and then it, it leaves you on edge to go find food, and you're just not in a peak mental state. But when you're in ketosis, all of a sudden, when glucose drops, it's okay, the ketones are coming to fuel the brain, glucose and insulin state uh, level and steady and you're much more resilient. So that's just one of many ways how, how keto could help you do that. Wow, I, that's pretty fascinating too around, I mean, I'm familiar with the vagus nerve piece and the gut brain access over the last few years, but um, the correlation between, you know, the nutritional balance and the need for fat for your brain. And it, my brain starts spider webbing into so many different things of like the chronic issues going on in society that you see as we age. Yeah. Um, around Alzheimer's and things of that nature. Oh, totally, man. Yeah. Um, there was a, some great speakers at the conference, which, which spoke about that, how the gut microbiome could affect or lead your, your chances of get developing Alzheimer's dementia, which are these disorders that are really um, skyrocketing out there. And a lot of these brain disorders are commonly linked to aging faster. And why do you age faster when you spike glucose throughout the whole day? It's like you, you are putting your foot on the gas pedal and you're accelerating this aging process because it's like glucose hit insulin, glucose hit insulin. So it's when you like bite into an apple, leave it on the counter, it starts to rust. When you're yeah. snacking throughout the day, that's what's happening at the cellular level. But when you practice keto and do intermittent fasting, it's less of those glucose spikes, which will preserve your lifespan. So as you're talking, the word picture I come to mind is like driving a stick for the first time when you're kind of like jerking, you can't find that rhythm and you're doing that to your body constantly. Exactly. You're rusting out wear and tear on that car, on that vehicle. Yep. Great analogy.
So um, keto is meat heavy diet, right? Maybe you can maybe explain at a high level what exactly the keto, I hate to call it diet, lifestyle or maybe the right term. You fill me in on the right term. Yeah, I mean, you could call it a diet because you could eat a diet to get into ketosis, but it really is more of a, a lifestyle, like you said, the ketogenic lifestyle. Um, it could be a meat-heavy diet. It doesn't have to be. For me, it yeah. is. Uh, I do really well with, with meat. Um, so essentially what it is, is dropping your carb. It's really a low carbohydrate diet, not necessarily a high fat, high meat diet. Okay. So it's really a matter of taking your total carbohydrates and bringing that below 50 total grams for the day. And those 50 total grams of carbs you have, you want them to come from non-starchy green leafy vegetables, these very insulin friendly vegetables. Uh, at the same time, you want to increase your healthy fat and protein. So you feel satiated, you feel full, your body can start mobilizing fatty acids. And that's all it is. I mean, there's of course, so many nuances to it, but you, once you drop your carbs below 50 grams and you're getting those carbs from green leafy vegetables, you're in ketosis. And you can do that within seven days if you do a gradual approach. And uh, I do recommend if you do it to keep those electrolytes up because you're, yeah. you're going to lose a lot of electrolytes as you drop insulin. So as long as you gradually decrease carbs, increase healthy fat and protein and increase electrolytes in seven days, you'll be in ketosis. That means you're now fat adapted, burning fat instead of sugar, and you won't get any of those side effects that you might hear about. So it, it would only take a week or, or so to get into ketosis, for even for a beginner. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I, I could take a hundred people and out of those a hundred people, I could, I could get 98 of them in ketosis in seven days without any symptoms. Yep. So is the electrolyte to offset, I think I was reading about uh, the keto flu as it, I've heard. Yeah, exactly. So the keto flu is more accurately described, at least by me as carbohydrate withdrawal symptoms. So if okay. we think about the average American, the average American is eating somewhere between 300 and 400 grams of carbs per day. To get into ketosis, you need to drop that below 50 grams. When you're eating all those carbs per day, of course, you're spiking insulin throughout the whole day. Insulin causes your body, your kidneys to retain water weight. That's why a lot of people eat carbs, feel bloated and look bloated. Okay. Now, let's say you're doing keto, you're dropping your carbs. Now you're going to drop insulin because your carbs are being dropped, which is a good thing. You're going to lose a lot of this excess water weight that you're retaining. You're going to look lighter and feel lighter, but you get this diuresis, which means I call it electrolyte dumping. The kidneys, not only will it dump excess water, it dumps these electrolytes. Yeah. So when you hear people say, oh my gosh, I did keto and I got the keto flu, it's really this dumping of electrolytes. So if you go slowly into ketosis with that gradual decrease in carbs, and then make sure you're getting those electrolytes every up every single day, you shouldn't have to experience those symptoms. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I, I mean, like in any shift in, that you do, you're going to have some kind of um, keto flu or flu-like response, or you, you're going to have the doldrums soon after it for your body to adjust, it seems. At the, that's where the magic happens, the change. If it doesn't change, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you, right? So it's the yeah. magic, it's outside that comfort zone. Yeah. So that kind of makes me think of expectation management. So what what is contextually like the proper expectations for somebody walking in to trying keto, keto um, to, as they're walking into it, what should they expect to, to see? They shouldn't focus on the scale. 
first okay. and foremost. A lot of people come to keto for weight loss, which is great because it could help yeah. you lose weight, but it helps you lose weight if you do it right because you get healthy, which is that's the way the body works. We do not lose weight to get healthy. We get healthy to lose weight. So an expectation that I would give is not to look on the scale, give it good seven weeks before you even step on the scale, pay attention to non-scale victories. And here's what you should expect to experience more energy, higher energy levels. You might skip a meal and actually feel better, which is a great sign of a flexible metabolism. Um, gut issues could improve better sleep, uh, less joint pain, less inflammation, so each week, as you do this the clean way, the way that we teach it at Keto Camp, you should get more benefits, more benefits. If you stick with it long enough to get what's called keto adapted, then that's when all the brain benefits start to really become enhanced. And there's a difference between keto adaption and fat adaption. Fat adaption typically takes those seven to 14 days, Scott, that we spoke okay. about. That just means you're simply in ketosis and you could test with like a blood ketone meter 0.5 or higher. Keto adaptation means you've been in ketosis now for eight to 12 weeks, and now your mitochondria prefer ketones as the primary fuel source. So it just takes your brain performance levels, uh, benefits to a new level, but yeah. that takes eight to 12 weeks of uh, being in ketosis. Okay. Okay. Um, and you mentioned, you know, a lot of folks that I've even heard will go to keto. Maybe that's some of the folks that have marketed the, the wrong way, but for fat loss and which is a good tool, obviously, but <clears throat> you're a lean person. Now you continue to do that. I'm an endurance athlete. How does that relate to folks, uh, like, like ourselves now in using keto as a method? Yeah. So you, you said that it could be a great fat loss tool. It can, because if you do it right, it gets you healthy, but like somebody like me, somebody like you, Scott, <clears throat> we do it for the anti-aging benefits. We do it for the down regulation of inflammation. We do it because it makes us feel better. At least that's why I do it. Okay. I do it for the brain performance benefits. Uh, I do it just because I just love the way I feel when, I, when I'm in ketosis. So I don't do it for weight loss. I do it for those other benefits, but uh, I don't also teach it in a way where you have to be in ketosis for the rest of your life. I teach flexing in and out of ketosis, which is the premise behind my book, Keto Flex. I was just going to ask you about that. I can see it right behind you too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so what, maybe expand on that principle of, of, of the book and, and like you're saying, cause a lot of folks are kind of binary, right? Regardless of school of thought, they're like, you gotta be all in or all out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was like that too. And we get into trouble when we are dogmatic about things. And I, I was dogmatic when I was a vegan, I was even dogmatic when I started keto, but when we think about our ancestors, I mentioned they all did keto, but they also, when they had the opportunity, got out of ketosis, which is what I call keto flexing. They didn't have this dogmatic approach of looking at like honey or, or berries or fruit or tubers and say, we don't eat that, we're keto. No, they would eat it. And their metabolism, our metabolisms are designed to go in and out of ketosis. So there are some problems that can occur when you stick with the same diet long term. And that includes keto. I, I believe the goal is metabolic flexibility, which is more sustainable. It's more doable. You get more results. And that's the premise behind keto flexing. Once you get keto adapted, then you have earned the badge to have some days where you flex in and out. So personally, I'm probably in ketosis 80% of the time okay. and I'm flexing out about 20% of the time. And that can look different for different people. But for me, probably two, two days out of the week, I'm out of ketosis and then five days I'm in. Okay. Is that when you eat your, your cakes and such? No, I'm just kidding. 
not so much. Ideally, you wanted to do it with like healthy carbs to your point. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what does that look like? Do you mind sharing like what a menu might look like for you on, on when you're flexing out? Yeah. So I'll, I'll have, I'll have some pizza, but it, you know, we'll be like a gluten, a gluten-free pizza. I don't do yeah. well with gluten, but that's the day I'll have my fruit. That's the day I'll have some white rice. I'll have sweet potato. I'll have yams. I'll have yuca. And I'll have about 100 to 200 grams of carbs on that day. And that will do enough to get me out of ketosis, make some hormonal conversions. But I've done the work. I could get right back into ketosis within 48 hours after going back to a keto plan. And that's what I believe is true metabolic flexibility. Okay. So in your experience, have you seen um, differences in men and women and how they respond to keto? Just because, I mean, we are, we are genetically different. Um, how does that part work for, for men and women? Great question. Men and women should do keto and fasting differently than men, for sure. First of all, men are going to lose much more weight, much faster. They have, we both have the same hormones, but we have different amounts of hormones. So men have higher testosterone and they'll burn more fat faster. Yeah. So we don't want to compare weight loss, especially men versus women. But when we think about women, women who have a month, a menstrual cycle, a monthly menstrual cycle, they have some specific considerations, which I talk about in chapter 12 of my book, which is all about keto and fasting for women. They want to actually, after they get keto adapted, they want to flex out of ketosis those seven days before their period. And the reason is because the seven days before their period, two hormones are in decline, progesterone and, and estrogen. Okay. And if you do keto that week and do a lot of fasting, those are, that's going to deplete them even further. We want to build progesterone, which keeps estrogen in check and it helps them have a healthy monthly cycle. How do you build progesterone? Well, they're with non-keto friendly foods. they are foods that are high, higher in carbs because insulin helps make these hormonal conversions. So for them, they want to flex out. And then once their period starts, they could go back into ketosis, back into fasting for postmenopausal women. You could be a little bit more aggressive with your fasting and keto, but there's still some times where you want to flex out to make hormonal conversions with the thyroid. Same thing with men. Okay. Um, when we think about the thyroid, the, there's two hormones that I'm thinking about T4, which is the inactive form of thyroid that needs to be converted to T3, which is the active form. What helps make that conversion is actually insulin. So when you're in ketosis for too long, you have chronically low levels of insulin, that conversion will begin to dysfunction and it can lead to thyroid issues. So that's another reason why you want to flex in and out for women and for men. That's a, that's an important distinction in that, you know, again, that whole binary discussion, but understanding there's a range to each of these things that you want them in an optimal range. Absolutely. So, um, when it comes to keto and, uh, athletic performance, you know, similar question, but just a different. So can you overlay that with, you know, trying to achieve your best or how you do that when it comes to working out? Yeah. So ketones are muscle sparing. Uh, and if you combine it with intermittent fasting, you'll get a human growth hormone bump, which is also muscle sparing and muscle building. If you are very active, like you are, Scott, you're an endurance athlete or somebody who's doing a lot of training, you could get away with a lot more carbs, right? When I, when I said 50 grams, that's for like an average person, but somebody who's very active, they might be get away with 80 to hundred grams of carbs and still be able to be in ketosis. So you might okay. want to time those carbs around your training. But the cool thing about being keto, uh, fat adapted or, or even keto adapted and doing these heavy bouts of training is that 
you don't have to have all these sugar, high carbohydrate or, or like drinks or formulas to get you some energy throughout your workout because your body could burn through its sugar reserves. And now it has the flexibility to just tap right into your fat stores and start burning fat. So you, you won't bunk once you are very metabolically flexible. There's an athlete, you probably yeah. know him, uh, Zach Bitters, who is a world-renowned um, endurance athlete, and he does it with keto. Um, and he, he does it in a really unique way where he times his carbs and he just burns through his sugar reserves. Then he has all this fat. Because when you think about the fat on our body, even if you're lean, somebody who has 10% body fat has like 100,000 calories worth of energy. But when you're just burning sugar, you have 2,000 calories. And once you burn through that, you bump. But when you're fat adapted and more metabolically flexible, you can make that switch to burning fat. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I know the bonk too well. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, you mentioned HGH. So, I mean, it, it, that's an important ingredient when it comes to fitness. It is anti-aging. Totally. Uh, and when you fast, you get, you get a increase in HGH. There was a study that I read that showed a, a 2000% increase in human growth hormone in men after 24 hours of fasting. And then in women, it was a 1300% increase. And that's because wow. the, the human body is very smart. It, it, it's not stupid. It wants to preserve muscle. Uh, and, and that's what human growth hormone will do. You have these hormones that go up. One of them is human growth hormone during a fast. So the body will, will not burn muscle unless you're doing it too excessively. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And, and then, you know, I'm thinking back of the last 18 months or so and muscle growth has been, what I've been reading is a good immuno shield, <laughs> I guess you could say is, is building muscle as to help with your immune system. Muscle is, is the longevity organ for sure. Um, but there is a proper balance. I mean, your podcast talks all about it. Uh, yeah. You know, you want to make sure you're training, but you want to make sure you're resting and recovering because the magic happens when you're resting and recovering. It doesn't happen when you're training. Yeah. Uh, and it's this whole hormesis philosophy, meaning you're applying a stressor, which is hormesis your body has to adapt to that stress and it adapts by getting stronger. That's what hormesis means. But everybody needs to determine their hormetic curve. For okay. example, what that means is when somebody starts to exercise for the first time, their <laughs> hormetic curve is going up. They're getting benefits. They're feeling stronger. They're having more energy. But if they do the same workout over and over and over for weeks, they're not going to benefit anymore. And all of a sudden that curve drops. Or if they do excessive exercise, that curve drops and they do more harm than good. So there has to be a proper balance of training and recovering. The recovery part is even more important than the actual training part. You know, I'm glad you pointed that out because I mean, it's just, I mean, it seems like it's growing, but culturally that's been the missing leg uh, of the stool for, for quite some time, right? That get her done, grind it out kind of mentality. It's not inaccurate, it's just incomplete. That's right. It's right. So yeah, grind it out, you know, train hard if you want, uh, but it shouldn't be either train hard or train long, right? So if you're doing right. a long training session, then have more of a moderate uh, intensity. But if you're training at a high intensity, make it a shorter duration. But then after that, both of them recover, rest, get plenty of sleep, your body's repairing, uh, fleshing out toxins, speaking about brain disorders, the brain dumps toxins overnight. So you got to make sure you're getting enough sleep. You're doing enough training. If you feel totally beat up and sore, it's a day where you do more uh, active recovery. You do some right. foam rolling, you do some red light therapy. You don't go and train heavy on a day like that. Yeah. 
being able to adapt is, is a key thing. Um, so back to kind of the HGH, you know, we're recording in the middle of November, it's Men's Health Month, and you mentioned hormones. So can you expand on that a little bit on how that relates to men's health? Yeah, and also women's health. But yes, for men, for sure, because they get it more of an increase in human growth hormone than women. So human growth hormone, there's many celebrities and, and musicians that pay their doctors thousands of dollars a month to have human growth hormone injected into them because it works. It helps you feel younger, look younger, and perform better. Uh, but there are some consequences when you get it injected exogenously, right? But what if you right. can help your body produce it endogenously? And you can with fasting. Um, so fasting is one of the best ways to raise human growth hormone, even like fasted workouts, um, like fasted cardio is also a great way to do it. Cold exposure is a great way to raise human growth hormone. Um, I, I, I haven't seen any studies on this, but I would guess probably red light therapy has some research on, uh, raising human growth hormone, especially if you do it like on your actual like body parts. Yeah. So there's so many benefits when you are having human growth hormone being produced, you're going to just perform better and, and feel better. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think that's the goal, right? You can talk about all the details, but the objective is longevity. Um, you keep hearing the terms health or I keep lifespan and health span. Mm -hmm. And those two, two elements. They're different and you want both. Yep. To your point. Yep. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'm not getting any younger hate to admit it, but I, I mean, it, it, guess it depends on your vision too, is, you know, I've got kids at some point, I'd like to be able to still move the same way I do with my kids as with my grandkids and maybe even God bless to be able to uh, do that with my great grandkids one day. Yeah. That's a great goal. And you know what, you're, you're not getting young, you're getting older chronologically, like with your, your age, but cellular, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? So you're getting older chronologically, but from a cellular level, you could actually reverse your aging and you could test your cellular age and they could give you a score. So there's two differences there. You have your chronological age, which is I'm 37 years old. Okay. And then I have my cellular age, which I could test. And you, you actually could reverse that. Like, let's really? say your cellular age is you're 45 and your cellular age is 45. You could do some things and retest in a year. And that 45 cellular age could go back down to 40, even though you're turning 46. So there's some ways to test that, which is pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Um, I'm just starting to look into some of that now. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating that you can um, kind of slow down the aging process. You can, you can. So you would test your telomeres and, and DNA methylation, and it'll give you a good idea of what your, uh, your cells are your age yeah. of your cells. Have you, have you gone through that process? I did a telomeres test probably like five years ago. Okay. Uh, but that's when I was in a mold exposure, had heavy metals, uh, mercury poisoning. Oh, wow. And my, my cellular age was older than my actual age at that time. Uh, I haven't done it since, but what, since then I've read that just doing telomeres alone is not that accurate. You want to do the methylation with it. So I want to do both. Uh, I haven't done both. And that's something I want to do soon. Okay. Neat. So you mentioned your, your history. I didn't realize you had some of those other external factors influencing that your, your health. Yeah. Um, yeah. So not only was I obese, I, even though I lost the weight, I lived in a house that had nasty black molds. And then I had eight silver fillings in my mouth at that time that all were gassing mercury into my brain. So I had to get that safely removed and then do some detox on, on my, uh, oh, on wow. my brain. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was going to ask if that had any influence on, on where you came from, um, mm -hmm. on, on just the wear and tear of your body. Absolutely. The silver fillings for sure. Cause I got them put in when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, the mold was uh, an exposure with that current house, but the silver fillings were around for a long time that contributed to my issues for sure. Yeah. It's amazing that, uh, some of the things, I mean, that we're discovering that we used just normally, uh, are, are maybe not as good for us as we realized. Yep. Fluoride, mercury, lead. You have so many things. So many, so many. Yeah. That's a conversation for another time, but, um, <laughs> we could spend a lot of time there. Um, so when it comes to, you know, you kind of started to mention, but like any key biomarkers that you, you should be tracking or be aware of when it comes to keto? Yeah, you could always test your ketones. There's, there's three ways to test to know if you're in ketosis. There's blood, there's breath, there's urine. I don't like the urine strips because they're not that accurate. So I wouldn't use urine strips. If you're going to use a breath meter, the only one that I like and trust is the one from Biosense. Okay. But the gold standard is... Um, blood, which I use keto mojo. So you look at your blood ketones and if it says 0.5 or higher, you're, you're in ketosis. Um, you're burning fat. That's a metric for ketones, but you also want to look at glucose. If you could measure glucose, that'll be a great way to see how you're aging fast or gracefully. So fat, a fasting glucose should be somewhere between 70 and 90. And after eating a meal, your glucose should be below 120. Mm -hmm. Two hours after eating a meal, it should drop below 100. So if you're hitting all those numbers right there, it's showing that you're aging gracefully. Okay. Okay. That's an important marker. I tried uh, glucose monitor levels uh, last year. Yeah. I see GM uh, with them. Yeah, they're great. Yep. So um, it was pretty interesting that I, personally, as a lean person, you know, I was tipping into the top end of the good range and flirting into the, I guess, what's considered... Um, what is it? Pre-diabetic, which sounds probably worse than it is, but, um, it's in, it was interesting to, to see that and understand the other contributing factors of why that might be. Exactly. It gives you a really good idea of what's raising it. Stress, uh, foods that you might have a sensitivity to sugar, mm -hmm. vegetable oil. So yeah, it's a great tool. I, I think the CGM, a continuous glucose monitor is one of the best tools somebody could wear yeah. for a month or two to get a really good idea of what's going on in their body. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, so keto, so I, I thought I read something that it can impact sleep, um, in some way, shape or form. I didn't catch the full context, so I'm kind of dropping it on you, but that does keto affect or can it affect your sleep in some way, shape or form? In the beginning, I've seen it disrupt sleep just because you're still making the transition. So if you find yourself having sleep issues in the beginning of doing keto, there's a couple of things you can do. I would, first step one would have, I would have a tablespoon of coconut oil right before bed to give your brain a little bit of some energy. Okay. That doesn't do the trick. Then having one teaspoon of raw honey before bed could give your brain enough glucose. Um, so after you kind of make this transition into keto and you're burning fat, you could stop that and your sleep should be better even before you did keto. But that transition, I've seen it sometimes have some bumps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so back to some of the, the food elements, you know, there's a lot of misperceptions again, around the whole diet and fad diets. Cause there's so many out there, um, that have been presented that way. What are some key misperceptions around keto that you think, uh, would be helpful to address? The biggest one is 
clean keto versus dirty keto. Most people who teach keto and most people who follow keto are doing a dirty keto approach. And sure, that might get you into ketosis, but it's not getting you healthier. As a matter of fact, it could actually be doing more harm than your standard American diet. Really? That has high sugar. Yeah, because if you think about vegetable oils versus sugar, right? If you eat a whole bunch of sugar and you're active, you could burn that sugar off. Right. If you eat a whole bunch of vegetable oils, there's nothing you can do to burn that off. It sticks around for weeks and months. Uh, and a lot of these keto products have vegetable oils in them. And they're they're called vegetable oils, but that's not accurate. They're, it's like a marketing ploy. They're industrial <laughs> seed oils. Yeah. They're called PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids. And there's eight of them, what Dr. Kate Shanahan calls the hateful eight, that are all keto-friendly, but they're worse than sugar. And some people say even worse than smoking cigarettes. So I'm going to list wow. them for your audience. Yeah. Um, you have canola oil, corn oil, cottonseed oil. Those are the three C's. You have soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil. Those are the three S's. And then you have rice bran oil and grapeseed oil. Uh, those are all inflammatory, polyunsaturated fatty acids. They're very unstable. They attract a lot of oxygen. They oxidize. They create inflammation for weeks and even months. And they're all keto friendly and they're all over the place. So we want to make sure we're not consuming that or limiting that as much as possible and eating more stable, saturated and monounsaturated fats like olive oil, um, coconut oil, grass-fed butter, grass-fed ghee, avocado oil. Those are much, much healthier. So when we think about doing keto right, that right there is one of the biggest things to do. Yeah. And, and I've become more aware, paying attention to that more and more. And even things that we tend to eat organic you know, 90% of the time, but even when it's packaged and organic, non-GMO, all the things, and then you see what it's cooked in, it's yeah. in those oils. And I'll say it's one of these three and it's three of the eight you mentioned. You're like, well, it's like it offset the entire rest of it. And I'm paying a premium for this. It's like, I might as well just eat the generic Lay's chip if we're going <laughs> to do all that. Yeah, they're everywhere. Um, so you have to read the ingredients. You know, there's some companies that do it without the vegetable oils, but they're all over Whole Foods, the Whole Foods hot bar. They're at a restaurant. So when I go to restaurants, I ask the waiter or the waitress, I say, hey, what oil do you guys cook your food in? And most of the time it's going to be like a soybean canola. And I tell them that I'm allergic and I ask them if they could use real butter or olive oil. And usually they have it. They could do that, but you have to make the request. Yeah. Yeah. And I know for us, we have food allergies too. And we went to this one restaurant and they used canola because it was the most benign oil. <laughs> and, and so I wasn't about to debate the person, but I'm just like, it's also probably one of the worst for you, yep. but yep. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's hard to navigate that, but I, I'm surprised. Uh, I'll have to try that in a restaurant. Do it. Yeah, Next it works. Up. But you got to tell them you're allergic. Otherwise they, they, if you just tell them you prefer not to, they probably won't listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we know we know that game very well with with our food allergies in our house. So there you go. Uh, but um, uh, well, Ben, grateful for your time and insights. Um, where can folks locate uh, information, further information for, about you? Yeah, thank you, Scott, for having me on your show. Love what you're doing. It was awesome seeing you in Miami. Look forward to seeing you at other future events. Yeah. Um, I have my Keto Camp podcast, uh, which is Camp with the K, Keto Camp with the K. Uh, which is on all Apple, Spotify, all podcast platforms. We have our YouTube channel, Keto Camp on YouTube. Uh, if you're interested in learning my four pillar approach to doing keto the right way, then my book, Keto Flex, would be the best book for you to get. 
Um, it has been endorsed by many other incredible thought leaders in this space, um, Dr. Jason Fung, Dr. Ben Vickman, Dr. Mindy Pels, Thomas DeLauer, several others. And you can find this book over at ketoflexbook.com. It's available on paperback and Kindle. I'm in the process of recording the audio. So okay. this could give you the four pillar approach to keto and keto flexing. Awesome. Yeah, that's on my uh, my hit list. I'm not saying that just because you're on my podcast right now. <laughs> awesome. That literally is, I've been, been wanting to explore keto for some time and just curious about it. So I'm always willing to try stuff. So awesome. Uh, Happy to hear that. Yeah. So I like to close things out with three personal questions. We won't get too deep, but uh, yep. what are you reading right now? I'm listening to um, two books, a, a Zig Ziglar recording. And then I'm listening to Radical Longevity by Anne Louise Gittleman. Um, so I'm listening to that. Uh, I'm, I just finished reading a book called Lymph and Longevity about the lymphatic okay. system, which is a really good read. So yeah, those are what I'm listening to and, and reading. Very cool. Yeah, the lymphatic is an interesting area where it's not discussed enough uh, mm -hmm. that I'm learning. Um, so important. Yeah. So... What are you listening to right now, be it music or podcast? Uh, for, for music, I only listen to music when I'm working out. And I listen to, I usually listen to the same bands over and over. Either The Killers, Red Hot Chili Peppers, or even Eminem are like my go-to. Eminem hypes me up for workouts. <laughs> uh, for podcasts, um, I fluctuate between several um, Cynthia Thurlow, my friend, has a good one called Everyday Wellness. Dr. Mindy Pels has a good one called The Resetter Podcast. Uh, and then I like Dave Asprey's. He just changed the name. I forget the new name, but it used to be called Bulletproof, Bulletproof Radio. But now I think it's called like Human Upgraded Human or something like that. But those okay. are the ones. And of course, the Rest and Recovery Podcast. Stating yeah. <laughs> the obvious, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so on that point, so what is your go-to rest and recovery method? Sleep, um, man, sleep is a priority for me. It is very rare that I stay up past 10 PM. The only time that I will stay up past 10 PM is if I'm traveling, sure. um, maybe like on Christmas night, my fiance likes to stay up till 12 to get the presents or new year's, but sleep, getting seven to nine hours of quality sleep, getting about an hour and a half to two hours of REM hour and a half to two hours of deep sleep. When I sleep good, everything else works that much better. When I don't sleep good, it doesn't matter what I do. It just doesn't work out as much as I want it to work out. Yep. Yep. hundred percent agree. Uh, learn the hard way, but yeah, definitely learn <laughs> the, as we all do. Right. Yeah. Best lessons sometimes. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Ben, uh, again, I appreciate your time and uh, expertise and uh, be well. Thank you, Scott, for having me. You be well too. 